Well, hey, uh, if you want to grab your Bibles or your phone, uh, we're going to be in 3rd John this morning. Now, if you have trouble with finding that, you probably haven't been there in a while, it's, I can help you. It's right after 2nd John, it's right before Jude. That should really help you. Now, actually, if you go to Revelation and go back two books here at 3rd John, okay? So Revelation's at the end of the book, so uh, the end of the Bible, so go there, and then go back two books. Um, we are going to... Well, let me do this. Let me just pray first. A lot of times I'll talk for a while and then pray, but this morning I think we just need to pray first, so let me do that. Father, thanks for the time just to worship together and to be in the Word together. And Father, we thank you for this Fourth of July weekend. We are grateful for our country. We are grateful for the, the freedoms that you've given us through the centuries, the prosperity and the physical blessing that you've bestowed upon us, Father. We are a grateful people. But, Father, we are a troubled people, and we are in trouble, Father. Sin has marked us in so many ways, and uh, there's so much pain and so much disagreement and conflict and suffering and poison, Father, just in the way we think and feel toward each other as a culture, whether that's politically or racially or otherwise. And, Father, these are a grief to you, and they are a grief to us. And so we ask you to pour out your Spirit upon this land and upon us as believers and unbelievers alike, that we would be a humble people, that we would bow the knee before you, acknowledge our smallness, our weakness, our need, and our foolishness, and our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ to come in and renew our hearts and our minds. Uh, that is the only, only solution to the world's problems and our individual problems and certainly our country's problems. So we ask for your mercy. We ask for your spirit. We ask for revival. And we ask you to be a merciful God to us. And Father, as we look into the Word this morning, we pray that you would, your Spirit, we'd be doing what it always does, is guiding us into all truth. And I pray that you would speak to each of us individually about the things that you want us to know and understand from this little book, uh, this book of Third John. And Father, I pray that you'd fill me with your Spirit, uh, that you'd give me a good mind and a good memory and a quick tongue and the ability to say what needs to be said and keep quiet about the things that don't need to be said. So, Father, help us now and help me. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, by now you should be in 3 John. And what we're going to do this morning, and for the first time in the history of Covenant Community Church, we are going to preach the prosperity gospel. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen when Carlin leaves. <clears throat> but before the elders make a move, um, we're not going, nobody's going to get rich this morning. Uh, nobody's going to name it and claim it, and certainly nobody's going to speak their own reality uh, into existence. But what we are going to do is we're going to look in this little book and see what God has to say about prosperity. Uh, prosperity uh, in terms of our physical life and as well as our spiritual life. And you know, the, the desire for prosperity, the desire to flourish, the desire to have well-being, that lies deep in the heart of every human being that's ever walked in the face of the earth. The reason I say that is because it was placed there by God. And originally, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, all those desires were met perfectly by their physical environment and perfectly by their fellowship with God. And then as we know, when Adam and Eve sinned and rebellion and sin came into the world and all of humankind fell into sin, uh, well-being and prosperity and flourishing became a great challenge, both in our inner life and our outer life. And left our own devices, uh, apart from God, we will, we will choose to seek out outer prosperity. Uh, we will look for, for health, 
We'll look for control, abundance, uh, money. We'll look for anything and everything that can give us a sense of security and, and feeling like we have this and we're gonna be okay. And if you can get that, that's a tall order, and most of the world has not been able to accomplish that, but if you live in America, much of America for a long time now has managed to accomplish this, quote, outer prosperity. But all that does in the end, ultimately, is reveal that there's an inner, a complete lack of inner prosperity. The brokenness, the emptiness, the restless within oftentimes becomes more apparent once we saw what we thought our real problem was, which outer prosperity. And so we're left with this, this issue of what is prosperity. And this book speaks very clearly to this issue, but doesn't ignore health, and certainly doesn't ignore um, the, the, the wellness of the soul. So we're gonna jump into it this morning. We're gonna start by giving a little bit of background. Uh, John, the Apostle John wrote Third John, and he's, he's writing to a man named Gaius. And Gaius is a good friend, uh, he's well loved by John and might even be uh, someone who John led to Christ, the way we talk so, so caringly about him. <clears throat> and Gaius uh, is not only loved and respected by John, uh, but he's also loved and respected seemingly by everyone else. And John is writing a letter of commendation and encouragement to Gaius because his life is marked by an outer life that is a function of an inner life that's prospering. So, God, so, so John is commending him. And in the process of doing that, John is also kind of identifying the different things in Gaius's life that make his life a picture, if you will, of soul prosperity. In uh, Gaius's life is not without trouble. He's dealing with a, uh, a church boss named uh, Diotrephus, who is uh, seemingly running the church like his own little kingdom and uh, even defying the apostle John. So Gaius is not living a a uh, peaceful life in the sense of what's going on around him. So that's kind of the background there. So let me turn to 3 John, and then we'll read the first four verses and see what we can find and then go from there. 3 John, verses one through four. By the way, uh, John simply refers to himself as, as the elder, because at this time in, in John's life, he's an, he's an old man, okay? And so he's writing from that perspective. So the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when the brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this than to hear of my children walking in the truth. So let's just kind of take this apart a little bit and see, first of all, the first thing that come to us is God is interested, when it comes to prosperity, God is interested in our whole being, and we should be too. He's interested in our inner life, but not in the neglect of our outer life. And so as we, let's, let's just kind of take this apart piece by piece and see what we can find. First of all, John says, I pray. Now this is the apostle John. This is the man who walked with Jesus. He saw God in the flesh, fellowshiped with him that way here on earth and now fellowships with God, the Father and Jesus as he's in heaven. This is a man with an intimate walk with God. So when he begins to pray about something, you can count on the fact that this is something that should be prayed about. So he says, I pray for you, I make requests of you. And what do I do? He's making requests in all respects. In other words, he's saying, listen, every part of your life matters. Every part, no part of your life is unimportant to God. We have this great, magnificent God. He is the King of heaven, the God of the universe, and he's given us this magnificent gospel to go into all the world and preach the name of Christ and the message of the cross. 
So he's a big God, but in that mag magnificent beauty and power of the sovereign God of the universe, he is also a father. And this is an expression of his loving fatherhood, the fact that God is important, what's important to God is all aspects of our life, both physical and our soul. And so we don't wanna lose sight of that as we walk with God and we wanna know, we need to know that no part of our lives is off limits when it comes to praying. A lot of times you'll hear people, well, I don't wanna bother God with that. Well, that's, you know, that's really not that important. That's really not a biblical concept. God, is, God believes in all aspects of our life being important. And so therefore John is praying in all aspects. And he's praying that we may prosper, okay? And the idea of prosper is, the, again, well-being, flourishing, and even success, and that things would go well in your life. And so John's praying in all these areas that things would go well, that we would prosper, and that we would flourish. And he names two particular areas in, in particular, our bodies and our souls. And the first one is our body. He says, I pray that you'd be in good health. Now, good health means, obviously, it's like I'm not sick, I'm not diseased, I feel good, I feel strong. He's praying that Gaius would feel that way and be that way. And that not only includes health, it means all the things that go into making health. You need to be able to work, whether that's at home or in the workplace. You need to be able to make money. You need to have food, you need to have medicine, you need to have rest. You need all these things. When, when John prays for Gaius, now what he says, I'm praying for all the things necessary for you to be healthy because God is interested in Gaius' health and he's interested in our health. So he's praying that way. But then here's the key statement in the passage. He said, just as your soul prospers. In other words, in accordance with your soul. In other words, what's going on in your soul, the health of your soul is way more important than the health of your body, as important as that is. Okay, so that's the phrase then that, that catches our hearts and minds here. Because the idea that, that the Bible teaches that we are integrated human beings, okay? Everything works together. We tend to kind of compartmentalize, well, I've got, you know, I've got my, my mind and I've got my soul and I've got my body and I've got my, my, my this and that and the other thing. It's like, no, we are, we are an integrated human being and God wants us to live integrated lives so that our bodies and our souls are in harmony with God. So we're praying for both of those, but the soul is the one that is most important and takes priority. And that's the picture here in this book. And the reason he's saying that is Gaius is obviously a man whose soul is prospering because of what's coming out of his soul into the lives of other people. We're gonna look at that in just a minute. That's one of the markers, okay? So, so how do you know? That's, so the first question is, and I'll have a series of questions here. The first question is, how do you know when your soul's prospering? If that's the most important thing, how do you know? Well, the first thing, according to this passage, is when your truth is the truth. You see John saying, listen, I'm glad to hear, I'm, I take joy that you're walking in truth. But then he says, but, I, you, but the idea is you're walking in the truth, and the truth has become your truth. And the truth has already been defined by John in the Gospel of John, okay, where he makes it very clear that Jesus is the truth and the word is truth. In fact, in that, in that, that whole working, if you will, as he talks about believing in truth in the book of John, 
He says, listen, Jesus is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He, I am the truth, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And also in John, it says that God is the God of truth, and his word is truth. So Gaius knows what the truth is. The truth is Jesus, the truth is the gospel, the truth is God the Father, and the truth is the word that's been spoken by, by God, the Spirit. So even the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's called the Spirit of truth in John. So, so he knows what the truth is. The truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we know, is the idea, you know, you see in John 1, 1, the word, the, you know, the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word dwelt, and the word was made to dwell among us. It goes most through John 1. And the idea there is that Jesus came down to earth, this is the gospel, came down from earth, down from heaven, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, and then died on the cross for all the sins of the world, and rose again, conquering sin and death. And that's why John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The book of John, I believe, says the word believe over 90 times. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the truth, and this word is the truth, and he's commending Gaius because it's like your, your truth is the truth, and you're walking in the truth. So that's the first thing, okay? Now, what does that mean? Well, whether you know it or not, we all live by what's called a truth narrative, a story that we tell ourselves that makes sense out of our lives, and, and out of that story, we make decisions about our lives, and we justify our decisions, and we justify our life to ourselves and other people through that truth narrative. That's our truth, if you will. It's our reality, if you will. Now, most people, Again, unbeknownst to most people, what they do is they patch, have a patchwork of ideas and that they've put together in their lifetime that gives them meaning to their life and gives them their reality, and they make decisions out of that. It comes from things like family, what your family taught you, religion, uh, your life experiences, your education, or your culture, and something called the spirit of the age. The historical word for that is zeitgeist. The spirit of the age, every age has a spirit, if you will, where it's, a, it's an irresistible flow of thoughts and beliefs and values that carry a culture along. And sometimes it spreads across country, you know, if you will, across country lines, it becomes more global. Other times it's localized into one country. And you move down through history, you see different spirits of the age working and moving. And that is very much a part of how people define their reality and decide what truth is. You see a spirit of the age evolving in our country. How truth is defined now is very different than how truth was defined even 50 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago. Now, that's how the world puts together their truth narrative. Now, for the Christian, the truth narrative is this scripture. And all other narratives are only valid in light of how they measure against this truth. That's what Christians believe, okay? That's, where, what, what's, that's what makes us different. And that's the idea there of what, what is it that, that marks us about the truth, okay? So, so what we see is Gaius is obviously a man who's walking the truth and, 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 is, and is flowing out of his life. So that's the first thing. It's like, what is my truth? Is my truth this word or is my truth what my culture is telling me and what I've learned on my own? And the idea is I measure all those other things by this truth. 
And to the extent that it measures up, then it's fine, it's good, it's true. And the extent it doesn't, then it needs to be rejected, right? It's a very challenging time to do that in, but that's the idea there. How do I, if, how do I know if I'm walking in the truth? So we have to measure how we're measuring our truth and who, who is your standard, who is the authority of your truth. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. So, so Gaius is walking in the truth and his soul is showing that evidence. So what are the marks of a soul that's prospering? Well, there's five things that come out with Gaius. And the first one is he's generous. He's a man who evidently has means and he evidently shares with everyone, both his friends and strangers, but especially people who are sharing the gospel, missionaries who are traveling through and he shares with them. And that's put him at odds with Diotrephus who has, who has decided that people coming through sharing the gospel are not welcome in their church and should not be taken into their home and should not be treated in any way friendly. And yet Gaius, because his soul is prospering, he's walking in the truth, he knows what the gospel is, instead of what he's doing, he's giving, generously, cheerfully, frequently, and, and abundantly, just like, like the Bible says. So the first thing we see a soul that's prospering is a generous soul, generous with people, generous with their stuff, generous with their time. So that's a marker for us in terms of if our soul's prospering. The second thing we see about Gaius is hospi hospitality. He's very hospitable. He opens his home to each one of these missionaries that come through, comes through, they sleep there, he feeds them, he helps them in every way he can. But hospitality is not just inviting people in your home, as important as that is. Hospitality is an attitude, okay? It's making people feel welcome wherever you are, whether that's here at church, whether that's your workplace, or again, in your home, or even just wh wherever you are, taking people out to your favorite restaurant. The idea of hospitality is you make people welcome and you have the idea, what can I do for you, not what can you do for me? That marked Gaius's life. So he's not only generous, he's hospitable. There's another marker for us in terms of how's my soul doing, okay? A third thing is courageous, okay? The thing about truth, the beauty of the word of God, the truth is it gives you courage, okay? It gives you courage to stand when you wanna run. It gives you courage to speak when you wanna be quiet. And it gives you courage to do something when you really just don't want to do anything at all, okay? And, and Gaius is a courageous man because this man, this Diotrephus, he'd intimidated people. He'd thrown people out of his church. Um, he'd done a lot of things that uh, were very um, uh, anti-gospel, anti-God, if you will. So he's standing and courageously doing the right thing. And then he, we see also that he's gracious, um, you know, what a, what a word for our time. Uh, you know, this is a time where uh, truth and, uh, and grace are, are hard to come by. And what we do oftentimes as believers is we separate truth from grace. And being a gracious man or a gracious woman who's walking in the truth means that you meld both of those together. And when we just give grace to people, it's mushy. We don't want to tell them the truth because we don't want to be rejected. We don't want to hurt their feelings. And so we just give them grace. If we give them, and oftentimes that's simply a fear of man, afraid of, of what uh, someone is going to think of us, say about us, or respond to us. And so we choose grace minus truth. That's not a biblical concept. The other way we separate is we just choose truth instead of grace. And we'll speak truth, and truth without grace is very harsh. And it becomes our truth, if you will, and not God's truth, because God's truth is supposed to be spoken truth in love. And what happens is we try to accomplish the righteousness of God 
in our own strength, and that is not how it's accomplished, and Gaius was not doing that at all, obviously a gracious man. You know, we live in a culture of rage and shame where speaking truth, your truth, harshly becomes the way the world operates now. And people who don't agree, you're condemned. And the, and the believer, we're to stand out differently, if you will, okay? So that when we speak truth, it's mingled with grace. And when we give grace, it's mingled with truth. And that's what Gaius is doing. And evidently, very well, he seems to be respected by all, so much so that, he, that Diotrephus has not taken him on. He's that kind of man. Everyone looks to him because he has what the next thing is, is integrity. Okay, and by the way, we see these in verses 5 through 11, which I just realized I neglected to read to you. So, now that you've seen most of what's in there, let me just read it, okay? Verses 5 through 11. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when, you are when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church, and you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support them so that we may... <coughs> their fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to, to the church, but Diotrephus, who le loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds and what he does, unjust unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself uh, does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. And so again, you see these pictures of things that John is commending Gaius for, but the last one would be that Gaius possesses integrity, okay? Uh, and the idea of integrity is that means a completeness, a consistency within the inner life, okay, that is in harmony with God's word, is in harmony with God himself. And it has to, it's a picture of prospering where the, where the, the mind, the emotions, the will, and the body are all working together in the same direction, okay? And it becomes a consistent picture. And what that does, what integrity does, it brings peace in our inner life because it's rooted in an absolute truth, not a changing truth. See, integrity, if it's rooted in a truth narrative that's outside of this word, then what was integrity 10 years ago now is offensive, see? And whereas if it's, and so that, does that bring peace? when the truth keeps changing and you keep having to adjust to it and your integrity is questioned if you don't make the adjustments fast enough, see? Because the truth in the world in any culture is constantly changing, constantly moving because it's not rooted in anything more than what the current thought of, of, of humankind is in this land. Whereas the word is always true, it's, it's a bedrock. And so my integrity, if it's rooted in here and I give grace and truth out of this truth, then I can be at peace that even though the world's swirling around me, I still know what the truth is. And this truth speaks to every single issue in every day, in every age, in every time, including ours. It's the only way through. And so we as Christians, we need to maintain our integrity, if you will, by adhering to this and being that word of truth and grace and light in a world that's in desperate need of that. Okay? But it also brings respect. It doesn't mean it doesn't bring conflict. And Gaius is in conflict. He's in con conflict with Diotrephus, and he's in danger. Just because he hasn't been kicked out of the church doesn't mean he won't be. And so, but the idea is there's respect there too. People respect someone who has a foundation, and they stay off, and they work off that foundation of truth, and they do it with grace. Even though they may just, and there, there are those, there are always some that won't respect, but most people in the end will respect that, 
even if they really, really don't like what you're saying and they really, really disagree and they really want you to go away. But there is this integrity issue that's very deeply attractive, okay? So, so this, these are the things that, that Gaius is exemplifying. He's generous, he's hospitable, he's courageous, he's gracious, and he has integrity. So these are markers for us. It's like, this is what we want to see the Spirit of God doing in our lives over time. And he does it in our lives over time as we walk in the truth, the truth of the word, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that leads, me, leads us to another question. How do I walk in the truth so that my soul prospers? Okay, you're telling me to walk in the truth. You're telling me if I do, th this word's telling me that I'll prosper. Well, how do I do that? That's always the question. You know, just tell me how to do it. Well, I could, tell, I could give you a list of practical things to do. You probably already know them. You need to read your Bible. You need to pray. You need to listen to good sermons or good podcasts. Read good books that are like a long sermon. You need to have a mentor or a disciple. You need to be in a small group. If you're not doing any of those things, zero, I can tell you right now, your soul is not prospering. It's just not. And if you think it is, you're, you're wrong. It's not. Now, if you're doing some of those things or all those things, then your, your soul may be doing well. But here's the thing. Did you know that you could do all those things that I just listed and you still your soul not prosper? And the reason is because a soul that prospers has to be ready to, has to be receptive to the truth. I can read my Bible. I can hear sermon after sermon. I can read books. I can be in small group Bible studies. I might even be able to get away with meeting one-on-one, -on -one, depending on who I'm meeting with, <laughs> okay. and not have a heart that's receptive to the truth. If my heart's not receptive to the truth, then my soul will not change. It will not be enriched. It will not be renewed, and it will not flourish. Okay? So that leads us to the last question. We'll wrap up with this. What kind of soul is receptive to the truth? Okay, if the truth is the key to my soul prospering, and if I'm going to walk in the truth, the key there then is to be receptive to the truth, then how is it that I, that I can be receptive to the truth? Well, I'm just going to bring up two things, okay? The first one is a soul that's prospering by being receptive to the truth is one who has settled the issue of authority. There's a tough little verse. It's really simple and really difficult. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, faith is a trust, biblical faith, is a trust in God and his word. It means that we believe that God is who he says he is, and we believe his promises, he'll do what he says he'll do, and we believe that all that is written in this word is true and has come from his spirit. So, it's settling the issue of authority. Absolutely true. The idea there and the way that plays out, you think of Proverbs 21, 30, it says, there is no wisdom, there is no understanding, there is no counsel against the Lord. And the idea then is, okay, if I've settled this authority, then every other truth that comes at me is measured by this authority. There's no such thing as me claiming this authority and yet, yet believing, valuing, and acting on something that's not here, okay? Now, we're all a work in process. None of us does this perfectly or even close. But the idea is to have an awareness that, no, this is the measure, and how am I measuring all the truth that's coming my way? Because some of the truth that comes our way is very good and very right in our culture. And if it measures up with the word, then accept it, act on it. It's right and it's good. And then other truths come to us 
that in no way measure up with this. Do not accept that. Do not act on it. Reject that. Okay, that is not. So that's the idea of settling the issue of authority. Sight is what we see, think, and feel. See, when we, when we, when we walk in our own, we measure things. It's like if I see it this way, I feel this way about it, and I think this way about it, then it must be true. So we're not only, if you will, settling the issue of authority with the culture, we're settling the issue of the authority within ourselves. I don't know about you, but I have a basic premise that I work from, and that's that I'm right. <laughs> now, I'm assuming some of you do too, okay? That's, a, that's not a good place, and the only thing that protects me from this is knowing that, no, this is right, Ron, and you're right only when it's in line with this. So the battle's out there, and the battle's in here, okay? What, how do you define right? How do I define truth, okay? So, that's the picture. Now, let me give you some examples of that. First of all, when you read something in the Word, and you don't like it, and you don't understand it, um, and maybe it even offends you, what do you do? Do you reject it? Do you get angry? Do you twist it, try to make it say something that it doesn't say and was never meant to say? Um, what do you do? Or do you come to God and say, God, I, and honestly, and just say, God, I don't understand what I just read. I don't even like it. In fact, in many ways, it offends me. I need your help because I don't get it. See, there's two different ways. One is, I'm right, this is wrong, or no, this is right, so it must have to do with me, and I don't get it, and I need help. What a thought. Okay, one is pride, one is humility. And then what do we do from there? When we see something that disturbs us, or we don't understand, do we go to a, value, to a valued source, whether that's a, a written source, an online source, or a person, or do we simply go to someone who validates our doubts and maybe our ignorance, okay? I can't tell you how many times in, in my life I've been in the Old Testament, and sometimes the New Testament, and I'll read something and go, what the heck? And I'll pull it down, a really good commentary, open it up, and this gifted theologian goes, well, it means this, this, and this. And you're kind of going, well, why didn't I think of that? It seems so simple when he said it, but see, if I didn't seek out more truth, the understanding of this truth, I'd go, well, that's just wrong. Instead, you go find somebody who knows more than you know, okay, in the right way, and see what they have to say. Now, not everything's that simple, but it's amazing how often a wise man or woman can make things, complex things look simple, okay? So that's one, that's one marker in terms of how is it that I handle the Word of God, okay? In terms of measuring how receptive my soul is to the truth. Another way is when life turns dark and tragic and deeply painful, uh, so much so that you can't even begin to understand. And there are people right here in our body that are going through those things. Or sometimes you see mindless suffering. Maybe it's your own or a loved one or somewhere in the world and, and it just looks like madness to you. And you can't even begin to conceive of how to get your head around how does this fit with the God I know, okay? So, so what do you do? Do you just, you run to the cross or you run from the cross? You run to God or from Him? 
Do you do like Jeremiah in Lamentations 3 and you just show up in all your raw, ugly glory and just vomit on God? And what did God do? He spent, that was the first 18 verses. The other, the rest of the verses, there's 66 of them, God ministers to him and helps him and shows him the way out of what he's seeing and to understand what he's seeing, give him hope and truth and a way through. See, see, do I simply run from God and reject him and say he couldn't possibly be the God I've been told he was because if he was, this would never happen to me? Or do I stick with him and go, I am going to hang on to you like Jeremiah for dear life, trusting that in the end, you will reveal yourself to me and I will understand what you're doing. Okay. So those are a couple of markers. Those are very real. You know, we've, I've got time here. You know, they, these, they're, as I said, there are people in our body who can uh, share much more deeply than I can, but I, I don't, I'm not authorized to share their story. I'm authorized to share mine. And so, you know, these, these last, um, you know, eight months, these last several months for all of us have been wild. But for me, it all started back in November. I was diagnosed with a return of, uh, of melanoma, as most of you know. It was on my back, and they cut another giant chunk of meat out of my back, and sewed it up, and uh, then they did more tests, and they couldn't find cancer anywhere else. Actually, they did that before the surgery. And they couldn't find cancer anywhere else, but as, on, on further review of the biopsy and all that, they decided that it was a metastasis. And so even though they can't find it, it's somewhere in my body lurking, and that's what melanoma often does. And so then we, just, then, so we moved toward radiation, and that was fun, and then we did radiation fatigue, and that was fun. And, and about the time it came out of that, then we had the pandemic and the shutdown and, and all the conflict and the chaos, racially, politically, just all the different things that we're all dealing with and trying to, and just confusion, trying to find what truth is in all this. And in the middle of all that, I, my system broke down. I have this system. I was telling Todd Shotson about this um, actually during the shutdown. I have this system. When I, when I run into something that I can't figure out or that disturbs me and troubles me, I, I think, I don't claim to be a deep, deep thinker, but I think long and hard about many things. And I think and I think a lot. And then I read and I read a lot. And then I pray, I talk to God a lot about all the things that I'm, that I'm trying to get my head around. And then I talk to the people that I feel like I need to talk to. And then I come to a conclusion of what wisdom is and I move forward. Well, in the midst of all this, my system has completely broken down. It, does, it wasn't working at all. Every time I thought I got my head around what's going on, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, it's just, it's just gone. And then for me, uh, in my background, is depression. It started slowly working its way toward me, and I could feel it, and I could see it. And all the time, I'm sticking with God, and I'm, I'm being increasingly Jeremiah honest with him about how he's treating me and us and all the wrong things he's doing and how I do it better and, and all that and just continuing to work, but tending to work toward him in, in all my confusion and in all my ugliness. And then what happened? Last Sunday, Lowell Lynch shows up. And I'd been a lot in the Psalms, but I hadn't been in Psalm 4610. The kids read it and then he read part of it. In Psalm 46, one and two, it says, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, <clears throat> therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth should change and the mountains should slip into the sea. And then it goes on in 10 and says, uh, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
See that? So all of a sudden, I'm sitting there, and I have no idea why the rest of you were there last Sunday, because it was obvious that glory had come for me. And he wrote, he wrote, he read, he read those scriptures, and then he dived into Jacob, and then he talked about the betrayal barrier. And I'm familiar with the betrayal barrier, and the problem is you have to work through it more than once in your life. But I completely forgotten about that concept. He said, when you feel like God has abandoned you, you're left with anxiety, bitterness, no, there it is, depression. And I thought, that's it? I actually used the words abandonment to God. I feel like you've abandoned me. You have not even abandoned us. And, and I sat there and I thought, I looked at Karen, she looked at me, it's because she's the one I talk to the most, bless her heart. And all of a sudden I realized, God has proven himself to be who he is. He's come to help me. And that's the idea, okay? Who's going to help you? Only God's going to help you. You have to stick with him. And whatever you're in, you have to stick with him because he is who he says he is, and this word is true. So that's my little story, and you have your stories. But your story needs to be that I stuck with God until God came through because he always comes through. It just never looks quite like what you had in mind, okay? So, one other thing I'd say, okay? A, a soul that's going to prosper is not only a soul uh, that, you know, handles what we just talked about, but it's also one that prefers painful healing to familiar misery, okay? Prefers painful healing to familiar misery. Now, I don't know if I coined that term, but I've been using the term familiar misery for a long time. Uh, and let me see if I can explain what I mean by that. But first, let me just turn to Hebrews 4.12. I'll read it so I don't botch it from memory. Hebrews 4.12 says this. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The idea there is we read the word. Um, it does some things. First, most, first and foremost, it pierces right down to the core of our being, and you can't hide. The next verse says all things are open and laid bare before God. It can be a deeply painful experience, so much so that you can choose not to read the Word, uh, not to engage it at all, or when you hear it or read it, to run from it, or when you hear it, go, no, 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 no. Try not to deal with it, because this Word is a healing Word. But I'm here to tell you, doctors that surgeons that heal the best, they hurt you first. And that's what this word often does. It hurts us. It touches our pain in order to heal. And it's so painful that we are unfamiliar with where it may take us. And so we know misery. We know how to manage our misery. We spend, we spend our, most of our lives developing coping skills that help us manage our familiar misery. It's misery, but I know it. It's familiar. It's mine. I've worked out all these ways of dealing with it. Problem is, over time, over the decades of your life, coping mechanisms break down. And pretty soon they turn on you as well as your misery and does damage to you and those around you and those you love. Okay? So, so the picture there is the word comes for us in the best possible way. And, and to me, a picture that is in John 5, I've always been intrigued by this passage. Uh, Jesus encounters this man who'd been at the pool of the Bethesda. Uh, and the Pool of Bethesda was a place where they thought uh, there was healing waters there. At certain times, they'd be stirred up, and they, whoever got in first would be healed. And we don't know exactly from the scriptures whether there's a, there's a truth element there or, or not, but that's what, and so his hope, 
His misery, he, he was miserable. He was built around a sickness and a disability that obviously he couldn't walk, or if he could, he couldn't walk fast. And his whole life had been marked by his disability. And his whole life had been built around this disability and trying to find his, get his plan to work so that he could be free from it. And so Jesus shows up, looks at him, and says, you want to get well? Next he said, do you wish to be made well? And you think, well, well, yeah, you know, why wouldn't I? It's like, no, do you wish to be made well? Because what Jesus was doing was not only looking at his body, which he was going to heal, he was looking into his soul, looking into a man whose whole identity and whole life had been marked by familiar misery and trying to cope with it. And he's saying, do you want to be made well? Because when Jesus comes for our souls, everything is fair game. Okay? And his intentions are twofold. I'm going to heal you, and I'm going to set you free. And it's going to hurt. And you can hurt the rest of your life with your familiar misery, or you can hurt this way and be healed. And so Jesus basically has a better idea. Rather than you trying your plan, why don't you hear my word and do what I say? Pick up your pallet and walk. And then later he met him at the temple and, and uh, he was, his soul was saved along with his, and healed along with his body. And so the idea there for us oftentimes is, do I wish to be made well? Do I, do I wish to allow um, God to enter into my life in such a way that nothing is off limits? Let me just read you a list that I made for myself. And my character, my mind, my emotions, my words, my family, my marriage, my kids, my in-laws, my friends, my values, my politics, my sex life, my social media habits. See, it's like, am I willing to be made well? See, this word is designed to heal our souls. Am I willing? See, so a soul that prospers is a soul that's, that's willing to be made well. So that's a question that we have to ask ourselves at different times in our lives. The issue of authority of the word is oftentimes that's settled one great time in our life, but then it's resettled over and over again, like it was for me these last eight months. It happens over and over again, okay? The issue here, do I wish to be made well? God is a gracious God. He doesn't, he doesn't dump the whole load all at once. If he showed us everything in our souls, that he intended to heal all at once, we'd literally die in a pile. He's a very gracious guy, more like peeling an onion. It's like, see this? Let's do this. See this? Let's do this. And he takes these very gracious and incremental. So you're dealing with a merciful God who's very kind and very good and very faithful and who does what he says he'll do. He never does it outside of his character. So these are the things then that make for a soul that prospers. As we do the things that we need to do, they will help where we build an environment for spiritual growth where we're in the Word, we're fellowshipping, and we're meeting with people, and we're doing the things that we need to do. Okay, that's the picture there. You know, there's a reason why John said in verse 4, I have no greater joy than this, than to see my children walking in the truth. It really reverts back to, to 1 John, one of his earlier books, not that much earlier. Let me just read just one little passage that, where he talks about joy. This is 1 John 1, 3 and 4. 
And he says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may too have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that your joy may be made complete. See, what's happening is we're being invited into the fellowship of God, okay? As, as the truth does its work and as our souls prosper, we're invited deeper and deeper into his fellowship. And what is that fellowship? Well, the fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is marked by pure joy, okay? And so joy becomes more and more a part of our lives. And then joy becomes something we give to other people. And John takes great joy in the fact that Gaius is walking in the truth along with many more of his children. So we want to be people who are being continually invited deeper into the fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So their lives are marked by joy and by healing and hope and strength in this, in this difficult time in a world where it's hard to know what wisdom is. But this is what wisdom is. And so we stick with God personally and we stick with him culturally uh, as, a, as, a, as believers in this culture that desperately needs salt and light. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are exactly who you say you are, and your word is completely true. Father, I pray for myself and each person in this room that you'd give me and us souls uh, that have settled the issue of truth and are wanting healing, even if it's painful, uh, rather than more than anything else, Father. It's certainly more than familiar misery. So, Father, pour out your spirit upon us uniquely and individually in each of our lives. Lead us into your joy. Lead us into deeper fellowship. Prosper our souls so that we might be a blessing to those around us, our family and our church and our workplace and in our world, Father. We might be salt and light in a world that's dying to understand and know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.